You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with our sermon this afternoon, I invite you to open your Bibles to the New Testament to John chapter 4, beginning at verse 19. We are right in the middle of the interactions between the Lord Jesus and the Samaritan woman at that well in Samaria, Jacob's well. So then at verse 19, hear the word of the Lord. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our father is worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, it has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. And we'll turn further in the New Testament to Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their woman exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with woman and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, malice, and deceit. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, 
they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 35 of the Heidelberg Catechism regarding the Second Commandment. What does God require in the Second Commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship Him in any other manner than He has commanded in His Word. May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to have, to make or to have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity. No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught, not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this afternoon as we consider the second commandment about how we are to worship God and and how we are not to worship God, I'd ask that you consider with me this hypothetical situation to see where we're at in our understanding of the second commandment. Now, this is a hypothetical situation. There's nothing real or historical about this. But let's say there was a certain church, and it was in a certain city in southern B.C., say in the Fraser Valley, very much like the place where we live. And let's say the church building looked a lot like this one. Let's say maybe it even had the name Langley Canadian Reformed Church. And pastor who served there was about this tall. And let's say in this hypothetical situation that one day this pastor called together an emergency meeting because he had what he thought was a brilliant idea. He had been reading and, and, and noticing trends in society and and people have been saying that people aren't connecting with God anymore the way that they used to. Everybody used to go to church. Now they don't go to church anymore. Attendance maybe is on to decline, perhaps not in, in, in that hypothetical church, but maybe in other churches around. And so it seemed like something needed to be done. How could people connect with God better? How could people worship God in a way that, that would be more real and tangible for them? So he called together this emergency meeting to pitch this idea. What if instead of worshiping a God every week that we, we can't see, what if we made an image of that God and, and put it right in front of the building? right in the front of the sanctuary for everyone to see so that we wouldn't have to offer our prayers to this this invisible God, but, but he'd be right there and people could connect and and maybe could even touch that image, a statue or something like that. Wouldn't that be a great idea? Wouldn't that be a way for people to connect and to worship God? 
Now imagine that even though I'm talking about a hypothetical situation, some of you are probably getting uncomfortable with the idea of even such a hypothetical situation as that. Now, in that hypothetical situation, what do you suppose would be the reaction of the congregation? I can tell you what it would be. It would be a defiant and loud no. No, we ought not to do that. That is not the solution to the problem that may or may not exist. That is the worst thing and the last thing that we could do And if the church order allowed it in this hypothetical situation, they'd probably say right there on the spot to that minister, you're fired. Get out of here. We don't need you here anymore. Of course, that would be the reaction because we all understand the theme for this afternoon's sermon. But yet there's more to understand about it. We all understand that the invisible and incomprehensible God cannot and ought not to be worshipped by means of images. That would be a, would be a terrible proposition. It would be all wrong. The invisible and incomprehensible God cannot be worshipped by means of images. But yet we have this prohibition in the second commandment. We're not to make an image of God in any way as the Heidelberg Catechism explains it, nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. Well, if the reaction against putting a a sculpture or an image of God would be so strong, so strongly opposed, then does this second commandment have any relevance among us today? Or do we understand this so well that it's really not a problem for us at all? And so we need to ask some questions. Why would people make images of God in the first place? Why do people make images of God? Why didn't they in the past? And, and why do they and how do they in the present? We'll need to consider what happens when you make an image of God. And then in light of that, we need to consider how do we worship God in, in a way that pleases him, in the way that he would have us worship him. So if that hypothetical story, situation at the beginning was so ridiculous. And the question is, why would anyone do it? Why would anyone make an image of God in order to worship God through it? Well, there are two things to consider sort of as introduction or to kind of lay the the groundwork. First of all, we need to realize that in the time of the Old Testament, especially, but also the New Testament, But especially in the time of the Old Testament, idols were very popular. Everybody, from what we know of those times, from all the nations around Israel, they all worshipped idols. Everyone, that's how you worshipped your god or gods. You did it by means of idols. So, worshipping idols was very popular among all the people of, of those days. That was the context, that was the situation in which the Bible was written, in which the Israelites lived. So it wasn't as unthinkable as we might find it today. And second, we need to realize that that the worship of God through an image would have often had good motives superficially. That is, 
most people wouldn't make an image of God and, and try to serve him through it just out of malicious intent because they hate God or they want to deny him or they just don't want to listen to what he says in, in the way that he says you are to worship him. But they did it out of some some good intention. You can think of Exodus 32. That's the account of Aaron making the golden calf. But what happened in that situation was that the people came to him and, and they said, oh, Moses is gone. We want you to, to make gods for us that we might serve them. And Aaron said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let, let's not do that. But why don't you give me your gold and, and I'll make a, a statue and we can worship the Lord through that statue. Aaron says, right after he calls them to give him the gold, he says, tomorrow is a festival to the Lord. Once they complete this golden calf, he says, now we're going to have a festival. We're going to worship God through this calf. Worshiping God, that's a good thing. Seems Aaron has good intentions. Hey, that's not so bad. That's worshiping the Lord, isn't it? So why do people make images of God? Well, there may be some mixed, superficial, good, you might call them, motivations in making an image. But once you go deep at all, then it starts to get not good very quickly. And there are deeper motivations in making images. Aaron, when he made that image, what did he make? He made a golden calf, or probably more likely a golden bull, a yearling bull, a young bull. Aaron didn't come up with making a bull from nowhere. He borrowed that from the nations around. A bull was a common way to represent, especially the Canaanite god Baal. And a bull was meant to symbolize power and virility. Power and life. So why use a symbol of power and virility? Well, you use a symbol of a bull so that you might somehow, by worshipping that bull, gain some of that power, some of that fertility yourself. And so the making of images was all about turning things to your advantage. It's about manipulating the situation to fit you better. In Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah the prophet has this extended narrative about someone taking a piece of wood, he chops it in half, throws half into the fire. That's going to keep his family warm for the next hour. But then he takes the other half and he carves an image out of it. Isaiah, of course, is poking fun or ridicule at the whole idea of making an idol out of a piece of wood that you would throw half of it into the fire. But the person finishes their idol and then they, they set it down and they say, now, you are my God, save me. When you have this little image in front of you, you can tell it what to do. You can manipulate it so that it does what you want it to do. Making an image of God is about manipulating. In fact, scholars who have looked at, especially the Canaanites, have understood that 
that the, the way they understood the gods was that the gods were really powerful. They could do a lot of things. They could help you in a lot of ways, but they didn't have the power to do one thing. They couldn't feed themselves. And so people would erect these images, these idols, and they would feed the image. And as thanks for, for feeding the image, then the God who was representing that image would bless them and give them whatever they wanted. So they give food and they get what they want. Happiness, wealth, fertility, whatever. So there is this give and take. Or there was this manipulation. Giving food and then demanding from the idol. It goes deeper with image worship. Because the goal of that manipulation, you realize, is self-focused. It's self-focused. You are manipulating the circumstances. You're manipulating the God for your benefit. It's not for someone else's benefit. It's not for the glory of that image or that false God or even the true God whom you're imagining you're you're worshiping through that image. But it's self-focused. And the Apostle Paul writes about the idolatry that affects pagans in Romans 1. And he says in Romans 1.24, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. So hand in hand in giving them over to those those selfish, sinful desires is the reaction of the pagans to pursue idolatry. The two go hand in hand. True worship is about worshiping God. True worship is about worshiping God, honoring God, seeing that he's lifted up. False worship by way of images is really about worshiping yourself. It's about turning things to your own advantage. It's about making it possible that you're lifted up and exalted. Now, before we go on, speaking about the idolaters of the past, we need to ask ourselves, do we make images of God today? Do we make images of God today? Do we seek to worship God By making images. While there are some traditions within the the broad scope of Christendom, such as the Roman Catholics or the Eastern Orthodox, that, yes, do make images, and although they would never admit that they are making those images for the purpose of worshiping God through them, that is, in fact, what happens on the ground. I had the experience once of sitting through a Roman Catholic Mass. It was for an assignment while I was at seminary to, to go and, and to, to learn about the Mass and to uh, sit through one. And after the Mass, they take that little piece of bread and they place it in this holder that's all adorned with gold. And it sits right at the front of the room. And everyone's silent for about five minutes while this piece of bread, which by what they believe has been changed into the real body and blood of Christ, is meditated on. And, I'm sure, worshipped by some of those who are sitting there. And so, some still do have images, idols, pictures, 
engravings, statues, which they seek to worship God through. But we need to realize that we also, although we are going, of course, to be very hesitant to make any sort of sculpture that we might image God with, we do make images of God, but we most often make them in our minds or in our hearts. That, too, is a sin against the second commandment. Let me give you an example. These days, a very popular version of the gospel is what's known as the health and wealth gospel. The health and wealth gospel is not known for making statues of God or anything like that. But yet, the health and wealth gospel reduces God to a a caricature of who God really is. God, it's said in the health and wealth gospel, is most concerned about, about the health and the wealth of Christians, of those who worship him. And so it's his, it's his singular desire to see that his people become more healthy and or become more wealthy. And so God is reduced to some sort of benevolent vending machine. God exists to give you what you want. If you're on the health side of things, then that's what you want, and that's what God's after. If you're in the wealth side of things, then that's what you want, and that's what God will give you. There's an image of God that's prevalent. If you read the literature, if you read the popular writings within the health and wealth gospel, it will become clear to you. You'll see that they're working with this image of God, which distorts who God is, the God as he's revealed in Scripture. But we can bring this closer to home as well, because we all make images of God. We make them along this this line. This, this is true. As many characteristics as there are for describing God, so we can say that God is loving, or powerful, that he's the creator, As many characteristics as there are for describing God, so many are the ways of making a false mental image of God. God describes himself as loving and loving in a certain way. But it's possible for us to twist our understanding of that to suit our own purposes. Or we can believe that Scripture shows that God is all-powerful and that he's sovereignly in control of everything. But it's possible for us to twist our understanding of God's power so that he's in control of most things, but not everything. God is revealed in Scripture as the creator. But it's possible to understand God in our mind in such a way that makes him not the creator. Or we can understand God as being tolerant by our definition or unfaithful or as many characteristics as there are to describe God. So many are the ways that we can change him to make a mental image or an understanding of him that is false. That is wrong. Here's something that you might consider doing this afternoon as you sit down with family and friends for tea or or after dinner or something like that. Open up your book of praise to Belgic Confession, Article 1, where the attributes of God are listed. And spend some time talking with each other and asking each other how it is that you do or that you might make a caricature of God. 
that you might twist what is true about God to become untrue to suit your own purposes in some way. Try that exercise and see if you can understand what it means when we say that everyone makes images of God, at least in their own minds. So, what happens when we make images of God? Well, the first thing that happens is we reduce God. Immediately, we reduce God. If you make an image of God, you are in some way reducing the truth of who he is to something else. See, the problem isn't just that we might try to visualize a God who is invisible. The problem, in fact, with making images or, or idols and even mental images is that we try to make comprehensible the incomprehensible God. In, in idol worship, the goal was to have a God that was more present, more changeable, perhaps even more helpful in a given situation. But the result, the result for those who engage in idol worship is you get a God who's, who's more weak than the true God and who can't help you. Or a God who's more distant and won't help you. Or a God who is fickle, who's unfaithful and may not help you. Or he may, you don't really know. Let's go back to the example of the health and wealth gospel. If you follow the the health and wealth gospel, if you, if, if you were to, to jump right in with that, then you, you would have reduced God's concerns about things in this world and about you to your immediate physical and financial burdens. That's really all that God's concerned about. But of course, God's plan is so much greater and, and more comprehensive and, and deeper. It's just possible in fact, it's very possible that the current financial struggles that you have are just what he wants for you. He doesn't want you to be rich, but he wants you to struggle to teach you to depend on him. His plan is greater than what you imagine it to be. Or that my health struggles have, have come from his hand. That he, in fact, doesn't want me healthy at this moment, but... He wants to increase thanksgiving for the many good things that I do have from him. Or he wants to grow in us compassion for those who struggle with health problems every day of their lives. Many other possible reasons why God would send us these afflictions. God is much bigger than the mental images that we're prone to make of him. In fact, the making of images means that immediately you reduce God. But you'll realize if you reduce God, then you change him. You can't sort of have a miniature version of the true God. Either he's the true God or you're serving something else. If you reduce God, you change him, but he's unchangeable. So you are, in fact, lying about him. You're not really actually making an image of him. What you're making is a lie about him. It's not true about him. Whatever that image is of him that you have in your mind or whatever you're trying to capture in some sculpture that you might make about him. There's a very close connection, of course, between the first and the second commandment. Very, very close. 
to make an image of God. If you make an image of God and you want to serve God through him, the, the moment that you make an image, you turn it and you're serving another God. You're no longer serving the true God. That image is not God. God cannot be contained in a statue that might be made of him. God will not be constrained to our immature mental caricatures of him. The image does not become God, nor does God become the image. The image is a lie. It's a lie about God. It's a falsification. It's a falsehood. It's not merely a falsehood, though. It, we're going to take another step further here. It's a very destructive one. We read in Romans chapter 1 about the, the destruction that comes from those who pursue serving idols. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, Moses warns the Israelites about worshiping false gods. He doesn't just say, you're going to be wrong. It's not good to be wrong, so you might as well do it the right way. But he says, when you, when you start, start to worship the true God by false means in wrong ways, what happens is you start to, to worship him in ways that are self-destructive. You start to harm yourself in the process of trying to worship God. He points out that the way of worship of the pagans is detestable. detestable. And if Israel is going to follow them, then they're going to follow them into doing the detestable things that they do, like, like sacrificing their children to their idols. So idolatry is self-destructive. Now we come to the last result. As you can see, as we step down here, it, it's sort of going from bad to worse. Because it's not only self-destruction that happens when we serve God in the wrong way, when we make an image of God. Ultimately, it's God who cannot and will not tolerate images that are made of him. He will not allow his character to be maligned in this way. He cannot permit the manipulation and, and falsification of his person and work to just go on. It stirs up his wrath. It stirs up his anger. He punishes and judges those who worship him falsely. The net result of making and worshiping images of God is judgment from God. So it's bitter for those who worship God in the wrong way. The question that we need to pursue now is, how do we worship God in a way that pleases him? Now, we're not entirely done with the result of idolatry. There is good news to come at the end of the result. It doesn't end in judgment for all. Because there is another result that comes from worshiping God by way of images. And as we've said, it's a universal thing. Do you worship images of God? I would never suggest that we put up an image of God at the front of the sanctuary in order to worship him through him. But the reality is that I carry around in my heart, in my mind, false images and caricatures of God. They, they change from time to time, but they're there. They're with me. 
So what's the result? Is it judgment? Well, this commandment calls us not to harden ourselves in our false worship, but to repent. That's how we began this section on the law. Lord's Day 33, what's the true repentance or conversion of man? This commandment calls us to repentance, to put to death that old nature. Yes, we still struggle with it, but we are called to turn away from it, to recognize it and to reject it and to turn away from it. When we recognize in ourselves that we have made mental characters of God and that we carry these around in our minds, we need to repent of that. We need to study God's word. We need to hear the living preaching of his word so that we can recognize the true God for what he is so that we can repent when we are carrying around falsehoods and lies about God in our hearts and our minds. We need to repent and turn away from that way of worshiping God. That's the result, in fact, for those who are in Christ. That's the result for believers. Yes, believers who struggle against the second commandment. In the first place, it's that we repent and turn away from that. We recognize it. But there's more. How do we worship God properly? Well, the catch-all answer is we worship God properly in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. I'll explain what that means for us. It's in Christ that we can recognize the problem in the first place, but there's more as well. The flip side of repentance is the joy that we gain through Christ. Christ has fulfilled our obedience to the second commandment. God doesn't demand that we obey the second commandment for our eternal salvation. If he did, we'd be doomed. But Christ obeyed that command. He didn't reduce God in his mind or heart during any time of his life on earth. He he adored God as he was. He always properly understood God in all his fullness. He bowed himself under God's judgment for our sins as our representative. He completely trusted as he understood in God's mercy. And knowing God fully allowed him to be obedient even to the point of death for our sake. So that we who are prone to serve God wrongly, might be saved. So the first part of worshiping God in Christ with respect to the second commandment is that Christ has fulfilled our obedience. He has done it for us. He's fulfilled all God requires in this commandment. But there's more. Christ fulfills this commandment for us because he is the image of God. Christ displays for us the perfection and majesty and holiness in the character of God. He's the image of the invisible God. So that through Christ, we might worship God properly. By faith. Yes, faith in Jesus Christ is the way that we avoid images and caricatures of God and worship God in a way that pleases him. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Paul says that we live by faith and not by sight. It's not that we need to see some physical manifestation of Jesus for worship. Absolutely not. We have no idea what he looked like in the first place. And if someone proposes that they 
do know what they did like, do know what he looked like, can tell you that that's a reductionistic falsification of what he is, what he looked like. That's not the point, what he looks like. We live by faith and not by sight. We live by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way that we worship God properly. We live by faith in who he is together with the Father and the Spirit, and in faith, by faith in what he's done together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus Christ gives us, through his word, an understanding, an ever-growing understanding for us in the right way of who God is, what God has done for his people. And also moving forward in our obedience. What's the way forward? Well, that too is the way of repentance. The way of growing in the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. We grow in Him by, by shedding our self-gratifying and self-destructive images of God and growing in a true understanding of God through His Word. Jesus Christ helps us in that. He gives us His Spirit. And so how do we worship God properly? Well, in Christ and with the help of the Holy Spirit. We ask the Spirit to renew our minds, to remove those caricatures, and to teach us about God, who God is properly. And, and what's the means that God uses for that? What's well, His Word? That's where He reveals Himself as He truly is. And so Jesus Christ leads us in the way of true worship. As he said to the Samaritan woman, or, or as, it, as it unfolds as he's talking to the Samaritan woman. He says there will come a day when the true worshipers of God will worship in spirit and in truth. And she says, yes, I know that someday the Messiah is going to come. And what does he say? I who speak to you am he. He says, I'm the way, the true way of worshiping God. And by the grace of God, that woman comes to know that. Brothers and sisters, let us continue to worship God in Christ, being purified from our sin and being renewed so that also with respect to the second commandment, we might worship God as he truly is. And let me leave you with this little tidbit also to consider that as we worship God, this is clear throughout the New Testament, as we worship God as he truly is, you know what happens? You know what happens to us? We, more and more, become, are changed into the image of Christ himself. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.